Thank you for joining us for our Renewal City Church podcast. If you're looking for ways to get involved, join us on Sunday mornings at 10 a.m. at the Roxy Theater in Longview. Or find us online at rcclongview.org. We hope you're blessed and that this message finds you well. While you're kind of wandering back to your seats, I just I do want to just give a very a very public thank you to uh, Betty Hayes and Susie Murray. Um, yeah, they they put so much work into. We had a Seder dinner last night where we had a, a missionary uh, friend come from Israel to talk about the uh, Christ in the traditional Passover dinner. Uh, if if you don't realize this, ev- everything that we do in Christianity is connected to thousands and thousands of years of history, and then going back into the to the Jewish and the, and the Hebrew people back thousands and thousands of years, uh, which is a crazy concept for people like us from America. We're like you know our country is a couple hundred years old, and we when we learn about history, we rarely go back uh, that far. But um, so it was just a wonderful time together, having a Seder dinner and hearing about Christ in those traditions. And, uh, and Susie and Betty worked their tails off. I know there were other volunteers too, but I'm, I'm honestly surprised that you both were here today for our service because um, worked their tails off. So we just really appreciate the work you did. We had a great dinner together. And then I just want to thank all of you who, it was wonderful. Everyone just pitched in and we cleaned everything up and... And I think I got home at like 9.30, which is, you know, was great. And so thank you everyone who just jumped in and reset the chairs and wiped things down. Um, yeah, that was, a, that was a great time. I really appreciate it. Great, a great time. I, I, I'm already like, man, we got to do this again. That would be awesome. I don't know if we can get Yoel back or not, but I know. I don't know if we can. How does that work? Can we book you for next year already? All right, all right, okay, great. Um, I'm James, I'm uh, a pastor here at Renewal. I missed the last couple of weeks. We were out of town for spring break. We took the family to Disneyland for spring break, so that was a great time. Uh, In taking the kids to Disneyland, my main goal on this trip, we took them seven years ago when they were smaller, and that was their first trip to Disneyland, and and mine and my wife's, well, actually my wife's first trip to Disneyland and then my first trip since I'd been a kid. And, and so, you know, going back for a second time, I know some of you do it like every year, but we're not that kind of a family. So for us, going back for a second time, for me, it was all about the food. And particularly, it was all about fulfilling what for me was a lifelong dream from the first time I went to Disneyland when I was nine years old, a lifelong dream to eat at the Blue Bayou restaurant in Disneyland. How many of you have eaten at the Blue Bayou? All right, now I'm somewhat shocked by that because going there as a child, uh, the Blue Bayou restaurant, I think we've got a picture of it for you. It's, it's a restaurant that is surrounded uh, on three sides by the entrance to the Pirates of the Caribbean. And so it's this beautiful bayou setting. You can see the blue background and the boats that are taking people on a journey through pirate land actually go around three sides of the restaurant and so as a child I can remember showing up and getting in line for Pirates of the Caribbean and then getting in the boat and then looking over and being like what are those people doing over there they're eating really nice food in a really nice 
restaurant. And for my family growing up, of course, we, we shot the moon to get to Disneyland. And the Blue Bayou is a notoriously expensive place to eat. Uh, making things more difficult is the fact that myself and my siblings had bottomless appetites. And then further complicating the situation is that when I was a child, if I was in a restaurant with a menu in front of me, I was instantaneously paralyzed with indecision. Of course, we would sit there and the server would come asking me what we want and they'd go around and people would order and it would get to me and at times I would be in tears, unable to decide what I wanted and it made it awkward for everyone. So eating at the Blue Bayou as a child, out of the question. That is not happening. But I remember sitting in the boats and seeing the people eating there and thinking to myself, what kind of people are those? Undoubtedly presidents and queens and kings and banking executives, only the richest of the rich could ever eat at the Blue Bayou restaurant. And yet, here we are, so many hands going up, you guys are among royalty here today. I told myself for years, if I could ever sit at that table and, and eat, well, uh, envious children go by me in boats, I will have arrived. My life will be complete. This will be the one thing that will make all things in my life right. Obviously, I'm exaggerating a little bit, but do you ever have that feeling that there's something missing in your life, and then you get an idea in your head that if I can just do this or have that experience, then that feeling of incompleteness, like imagine if you were Swiss cheese, and you saw like real cheese, and you're like, wow, I'm all full of holes. If I could just... If I could just be cheddar, then I would be complete. Um, this is how I felt about the Blue Bayou restaurant. And so I anticipated this trip with uh, a lot of uh, hopeful excitement about what my experience would be like. Now, the worst part of the California trip was that we were gone on Palm Sunday. Now, technically, we were back in town. We rolled into town late Sunday or early Sunday morning. Uh, I know we could have made it here. I'm just, this is full disclosure. I could have made it to church last week, all right? But we'd stayed up pretty late, and I needed to detail my parents' van that I borrowed before they came over to get it. So didn't make it last week. But we were back in town. But the worst part was that we missed Palm Sunday, uh, which is really one of my favorite Sundays of the year. I'm not exactly sure why, but it's one of my favorite messages to preach. And and David uh, preached it last week. He crushed it. If you didn't catch it, it it's, it's in the podcast, I'm sure. But, but if you were here last week, you heard David describing this scene, this victorious scene of, of Jesus riding into Jerusalem and the Jews being just over the moon excited for what they believe is coming. The whole city is poised with excitement. There's anticipation that this king God has given us a king, a messiah, a deliverer who is going to, in this moment, is going to deliver us from our oppressors. Rome is going to be chased out of here anytime. We are finally going to be made whole and complete again. This is, this is when our nation's going to be restored. This is when all the holes are going to be filled, right? And, and it's this big parade. Of course, he referenced that on the other side of town, there was another glorious parade of Rome and all of its glory. And, and so it's a party all around. Everyone's feeling pretty excited about their future and everything that it holds. Prophecies are being fulfilled. 
God is, is here in the moment and everyone's super excited. It's almost as if the nation of Israel knew that they had their reservations to the Blue Bayou restaurant, right? Well, something happened to me uh, when I actually got to go and eat at the Blue Bayou. Things didn't work out exactly how I thought they would. Now, I was prepped for this a little bit because we knew after we'd booked the trip and started making plans, we knew that the Pirates of the Caribbean ride was going to be closed for renovations. So I know many of you would have just canceled your tickets and rescheduled just on that note alone. But we like to stick to our commitments. So we still went. Um, we kept our reservations at the Blue Bayou. But I was, my heart was prepped for uh, a bit of a letdown. Uh, nothing could have prepared me for what was there, though. Uh, we, we, you know, I'm thinking worst-case scenario, we'll be sitting and eating dinner, and the boats will be going around empty. There will be no envious people in them. The boats are just going around empty, which, you know, obviously a takeaway, but, but not as bad as it could be. Well, we get there. The Disney cast member escorts us to our table. Yes, uh, Dieter, party of four. Actually, I guess it was a Jones party of four because my sister made the reservation. But we didn't bring the kids, by the way. They missed out on it. They, they can go to the Blue Bayou on their own dime, right? Um, we get escorted to our table, and it's like... My mind is scanning the room. You know, what, what are we getting into here? What's going on? There's no boats. There's, there's no, you know, bayou surrounding us. There's no trees. There's, there's, there's a lot of blue, though. Someone has stuck up a plywood wall around three sides of the restaurant. And they've painted it blue. I, sounds marvelous, doesn't it? There are no pictures online from that. The mouse has made sure that no one who takes a camera into the Blue Bayou right now can share those photos with the rest of you. Good grief. So, so we've got our table right next to the plywood. And, and suddenly this night that was supposed to be extraordinary and life-changing is, uh, is just another night with, with good food and, and great company. Uh, but it was, it was a letdown. Um, in this moment when I got that thing that I'd always been wishing for, uh, uh, that, that thing that I, I had longed to eat at this table for over two decades, which is a long time for a young individual like myself. The next day, I was still hungry for another meal. The next day, that feeling of there's something missing is back. I wonder if any of you have ever realized one of your dreams or one of your highly anticipated experiences just to wake up the next day hungry again or to realize that that just didn't work out how I thought it would and I'm not complete right now. I know for me it was it's maybe even slightly worse than the situation you were in before because now what do I have to look forward to? The blue bayou has come and gone and I'm still hungry and surely nothing in my life can ever top that. So so often in our world, things that are advertised, advertised to make you complete, to make you whole, you go for it, and then you still find yourself lacking. Sometimes you wonder, how can it be in a world with so many wonderfully advertised things, how can it be that our world is still so broken? How can it be that humanity hasn't figured this out and solved more of these problems yet? In the story of the triumphant entry, in the, in the story of Palm Sunday and leading into Holy Week, of course, the nation of Israel began to feel incredibly dissatisfied with their Messiah as well. 
This king shows up into town. He's riding on a donkey. They're thinking, this is our moment. And then over the course of the week, events unfold to the point where they go, this is entirely unsatisfactory. This is not what we were hoping for. During Jesus' trial, his accusers have now rejected the king that God has given them, the king who rode in on a donkey. And at one point during Jesus' trial, the judge, the ruler who was kind of there deciding things, his name was Pontius Pilate, he's saying to the Jewish people, he's pointing out the absurdity that they want to kill their king. Uh, he, he says to them, uh, he brings Jesus out after having questioned him and and uh, had him scourged and beaten. He brings Jesus out to give him back to the people. He's like, I can't find anything wrong with this man. Here, he's free. And they're like, no, we don't want him. And he says to them, are you going to crucify your king? This is crazy. And they're like, we have no king but Caesar. Which is a, an unbelievable statement for, and actually it says that the, the, um, the high priest, the the religious leaders that people make this statement. We have no king but Caesar. There is no ruler. There is no authority in our lives but Caesar. This is what God's people are saying. And so often when we're in a moment of disillusionment and the people of Israel thought their king was coming, he didn't deliver like they thought, he got himself arrested, he's not, this isn't working out like we thought. They, they do things that you would think they would never be capable of. They do things that maybe even surprise themselves. And so here in this moment, the religious leaders, God's people are saying, we prefer Rome over the king that God has given us. We prefer the, the oppression of Rome. We prefer, we will bow the knee before Caesar before we will receive this king that God has given us. This man of meekness, this man of humility, this is the last person we want to align ourselves with. In their disillusionment with, them, with their Messiah, they find themselves compromising and reaching out to other avenues or other things for some sense of wholeness and some sense of completeness. In this moment, the nation of Israel reaches out toward Rome and says, you be our king, you be our ruler. Of course, joining the Jewish people in their disillusionment with Jesus the Messiah leading up to his crucifixion we have his disciples as well. Take a moment and imagine these are our men, and, uh, and then he was followed by a whole host of people, men and women, who had given their lives to his ministry, to his teaching. They had been following him around, some of them for years. They'd abandoned their, their line of work. They were all in on Jesus being the Savior, the Messiah. And imagine their embarrassment. Here's Jesus, he's been arrested, he's he's. You know, in this public trial, he's condemned to die, to be crucified. And imagine what they're thinking about their life choices in that moment. The disillusionment, the disappointment that they're feeling. Oh man, I've made a terrible mistake. How am I going to get out of this? Some of the disciples are denying the Lord. They're frightened. They're hiding. They're going back to their former lives before they were following Jesus. And in this moment, all hope just seems lost. Things have not turned out how they thought they would. This is a huge disappointment. And people are beginning to waver a little bit in their faith. And let's be honest. If you have walked with the Lord, if you followed Jesus for any length of time, you've probably had moments like that too. Moments of disappointment. Moments of disillusionment. Moments where you're tempted to 
waver in your faith and you're thinking to yourself, how in the world can things be like this? The, the Bible narrative, the story of earth that scripture tells us, makes it clear very early on that, that humanity's relationship with God, this God who is good, this creator who makes things good and holds the world together, that there was a rupture in that relationship. That there was a rebellion on humanity's part that resulted in brokenness and resulted in a world that's just full of holes. And then, and then the scripture tells us that God's plan for restoring that world, God's plan for making the world good again, involves step one, releasing, turning humanity over to their brokenness. Step two, we see evidence of that turning over and sending them out of the garden, the Tower of Babel, turning them over to uh, you know, this, this evil of their way. Step, two, step one, turning them over. Step two, through one man beginning to execute a plan of restoration. The fact that God chose one man, that man is Abraham. He's in the book of Genesis. He's kind of a big deal in the Christian religion and the, and the Jewish religion. This one man, the fact that God is using one man to restore the relationship of humanity to God, to himself, is really meant to be pointing us ultimately to Jesus, the one man who brings about restoration. But there's this story in Genesis 15, this point in Abraham's life, when he is wrestling with disappointment and disillusionment. There's a conversation between Abraham and God. It's recorded in Genesis 15. And now, this, at this point in Abraham's life, for years, he's been walking with God. God has met him in a special way, spoken to his heart, called him out from his people to go. And, and he says, I'm going to make you a nation. I'm going to bless you. And I'm going to bless those who bless you. And, and I'm going to bless the whole world through you. And, and, and this is kind of this communication that he's had with God, and he's living it. He's living in obedience to God. He's, he's uh, presumably abandoned, worshiping any other gods, and, and he's going for God. And through these ongoing interactions, at some point God comes to Abraham in Genesis 15, and he says to him, Abram, don't be afraid. I am your shield and your very great reward. God shows up, says, I am your shield. I am your reward. You're going to be fine. Don't be afraid. And Abram says back to God, he's like, look, what good is a reward to me? Because I don't have a son to pass this on to. It's a great question to ask. And I think especially for us to reflect on in a society where uh, we tend to think if things work out for me, that's good enough. If, if I have what I need, that's good enough. We don't give a lot of thought to the people who are coming next. But for Abram, he's like, okay, God, we have this great thing going. I'm walking with you. You're talking about this plan of restoration that's going to happen through my family. But there's a problem here. I don't have anyone to pass this on to. I don't have an heir. I don't have a son. What good is this thing that we have if I don't have anyone to pass it on to. What good is this thing that we have if it's just going to die with me? God says to Abraham, I am going to give you a son who is your own flesh and blood. And then he takes Abraham outside and he says to him, look up at the stars. And if indeed you can count them, 
If you could even number those stars, this is how your offspring are going to be. So shall your offspring be. In this moment of disillusionment, of disappointment, Abraham's like, you are saying all this, God, but I don't see it. God says to him, he takes him outside, he says, look at those stars. I am going to give you offspring that number like the stars. I'm going to give you your own flesh and blood son, and that son is going to be fruitful. There's going to be more children, generations coming after that. He says, I'm going to be faithful to do what I have promised. He's promised Abraham a son years before this. It hasn't happened. God's like, I know it may look like I've dropped the ball. It may look like the clock has run out. It may look like things are too late, but I'm going to give you a son. I'm going to do what I say I'm going to do. The next line in the story says that Abraham believed God and it was reckoned, it was counted to him as righteousness. Now in the New Testament, so centuries and centuries after this happens, there's one of Jesus' followers, the Apostle Paul, is reflecting on this conversation between Abraham and God. And he says in Romans chapter 4, he says of this moment when God says to Abraham, I'm going to give you a son, and Abraham believes God, he says in Romans 4.18 that against all hope, Abraham believed, and so he became the father of many nations. Children, as numerous as the stars. He says, uh, just as it had been said to him, so shall your offspring be. Verse 19, he says, without weakening in his faith, Abraham faced the fact that his body was as good as dead. Since he was about 100 years old. He also faces the fact that Sarah's womb, his wife's womb, is as good as dead as well. And yet in that place, Abraham's considering, look, body, dead. Sarah, dead. But in that place, he did not waver through unbelief regarding the promises of God. He was strengthened in his faith, and he gave glory to God, being fully persuaded that God had the power to do what he had promised. In a moment where Abraham is faced with disappointment because everything that he sees is unsatisfactory. Everything that he sees says, Death has the final word in this situation. In a, in, out of faith in God and trusting God, he says to himself, I know that God is powerful enough to be sure that death does not get the final word in my situation. What's different about Abraham's journey through disillusionment is that in the end, he trusts God. In the end, he believes God's faithfulness. He says, I know that God can make this right. Doesn't make sense, doesn't add up, but I know, I am convinced, I believe that God can make this right. Paul says in chapter 4, 22, he says, this is why it was credited to him as righteousness. That Abraham, through just believing God's word that he said, believing that it's true, trusting in God's character, who he is, saying, I, I see a lot of bad things in this world, but I believe that God is good. I believe that he loves me. I believe that he's faithful to do what he said he would do. That through that belief, God says, you are righteous. In the next part of the story, God insists on and sealing this new covenant, this new thing that he's doing with Abraham uh, through a sacrifice. 
Now, this, was, this is God tapping into a tradition that was happening in the Near East, you know, ages and ages ago. This even precedes any of the, the Hebrew traditions. They had this custom that when two people would make a covenant with each other, they would butcher a bunch of animals. They would, they would uh, cut the carcasses in half. I know all this stuff is just brutal in our modern sensibilities. They would cut the carcasses in half, and then the two covenant parties would walk through the center of these carcasses as if to say to one another, if I don't fulfill my end of the bargain, let it be done to me like these carcasses. Let me become like these carcasses. Let me surrender my life like these sacrificial animals have. So God tells Abraham to get the animals, to make the sacrifices, to cut them. And then in the story, Abraham falls asleep. And God shows up and passes through those carcasses himself, passes through the sacrifice himself. As if to say, Abraham never passes through, so you're off the hook. If this covenant is not fulfilled, if anyone isn't faithful to this, I myself will lay down my life just like these animals. I myself will become the sacrifice. And if you know the story of Abraham, he has a son who has a son who has 12 sons who become the 12 tribes of Israel. And Abraham's family over and over and over breaks the covenant with God. They're not faithful to do what they've promised to do. They're not faithful to walk with God. They don't believe him or obey him time and time again. And yes, there are many sacrifices offered trying to cover this up, trying to make it right. Loads of them. I mean, the, the animal bodies are just piling up. And yet nothing seems to be getting better. The people of God seem to be falling further and further away from him. The things that God had promised to Abraham about his family just don't seem to be coming true. As the Apostle Paul is writing about this in Romans chapter 4, in the next few verses, he begins to insist that this story and this covenant, that it's not just about Abraham, and it's not just about Abraham's flesh and blood children, but there's a bigger story being told here, a story about God making people righteous, about God making righteous anyone who would believe in him and who believes in, in his power and in his way. Specifically, he writes in verse 23, he says, the words... Speaking of the Old Testament, the words, it was credited to him, they weren't written for Abraham alone, but they were also written for us, to whom God will credit righteousness, for us who believe in him who raised Jesus our Lord from the dead. What is he saying? He's saying this whole idea of God making righteous those who believe in him is not just something he did uniquely for Abraham out of all of humanity, but this is something that God is doing for all who believe in the God who raises Jesus from the dead. Verse 25, he says, Christ was delivered over to death for our sins, the broken covenant, the, the sacrifice that's meant to be. This is why Jesus died. One thing that we see Christ doing on the cross is fulfilling that original covenant with Abraham. When, when God passed through the sacrifices and said, if this covenant is broken, let me become just like these animals, Christ is on the cross doing that, saying this thing was broken and I am paying the price for the brokenness. I am fulfilling 
that covenant. He's fulfilling all the sacrifices that were required in that moment. God, in that moment, God is using one man to pay the price and to restore all of the people to himself. Now, the Messiah who was sacrificed wasn't what people were necessarily wanting or expecting. This is when you've heard the saying, hindsight's twenty-twenty. It really wasn't until after Christ did it all that even the people who had lived these scriptures, committed them to memory, were, you know, the Jewish people, his own followers. It wasn't until after all this that they look back and they're like, oh, this all makes sense. Why weren't we looking for a Messiah who would sacrifice himself all along? Hindsight's twenty twenty. So don't get upset at them for not understanding it. Um, but on this Easter morning, we celebrate the moment when this story of brokenness, when the story of broken covenant, when the story of, of rupture between humanity of God, we celebrate the moment when that story's ending gets rewritten. We celebrate the moment when God proved that death and dying doesn't have to be the final word in a story. That God's power is able to do what he has promised to do. On Easter, on, on Resurrection Sunday, we believe that Christ, who had in his humanity entered the depth of human fallenness. He'd entered death and Hades itself, and yet Christ, who's clothed in the fullness of of God entered into that place. And Paul's letter to the Colossians tells us how in that place he, he took death and Hades captive. He made a mockery of death and hell. How in that place he conquered the spiritual powers of evil and the principalities of darkness who ages ago had committed themselves to the destruction of humanity. How Christ enters hell and overcomes it all and turns the place upside down. And he comes out of that place. He, as a human, as a man, the man Christ enters death and hell and then comes out of that place, uh, rewriting the destiny of all of humanity. The end of humanity's story is no longer the grave and death, but the end of humanity's story is something very different. One of the ways that uh, the scriptures talk about the end of our story is they use the, the image of a meal, a feast. These people who who, I mean, the, the miracle of Easter, right? The reason that we're celebrating this is because a couple thousand years ago, somebody died, and then a few days later, people began to claim that person is alive. He's not actually dead. And what's more, the fact that he's not dead means that we who believe in him will never die. That there's something beyond the perishing of our human bodies. There's something beyond this world that is going to go on forever. And what is that like? It's like a feast. My favorite memory from our trip to Disneyland this time around uh, was this, this memory right here. We've got a picture of it. This is the last night before we drive back home. Uh, we're out at the coast. Uh, we're staying in a hotel, and I'm, I'm sitting at a table enjoying a feast of, of popcorn and banana grams. <laughs> but what's special about it is that the four people who mean the most to me in this world 
are sitting here sharing a moment of the beauty of God's creation. And this is what's significant about the feast that God is, the table that Christ is setting for us, is that he has looked across humanity and he said in his heart, I love you, I want you, and I am creating a feast where all of my people will come together and share a meal. When you have moments like this, you say things to yourself like, why in the world did I spend all that money at Disneyland? <laughs> because this, this is the moment. This is the highlight. It doesn't get any better than this. The beauty of God's creation, you can't buy a sunset. God just gifts that. You can't, you could not buy a family this great. I mean, look at those four. <laughs> Dollar store sunglasses and all. Um, I really think that this is what God is after with this whole idea of reconciliation. He has set a table for us where he longs for us to come and enjoy him, to share an intimate moment with him and with his people. Each week we set here at Renewal the Lord's table. We have it set with bread that represents the broken body of Christ, and we have it set with a cup that represents his blood establishing a new covenant. And if you want to learn how this table with the bread and the cup is tied to the thousands of years old Jewish tradition, come to our Seder dinner next year and find out all about that. But this tradition comes up, Jesus set it up on the night that he was betrayed. And this ritual is meant to help us experience and embrace the new realities of this new thing that God is doing in humanity. This new covenant that he's making, and it's a different one. This covenant isn't based on a genetic bloodline or, or on a regional inheritance or, or on uh, adherence to any forms of, of rules or regulations. These terms are totally different. This is a covenant where when the Apostle Paul writes about it in his letter to the Corinthians, he says this is a covenant where God says he's no longer counting men's sins against them. This is a covenant that where God declares, my son has come, he's paid it all, and, and one sacrifice has now been given for once and for all time, and nothing more is required. No more blood is required. This is the sacrifice where God has paid it all, and he is now offering himself in fellowship to any who would believe in it. Speaking of his own body, Jesus said in John chapter 6, I am the bread of life. And whoever comes to me will never be hungry again. And whoever believes in me will never be thirsty again. We talk about those holes in our lives that we're trying to fill with different things. And the one thing that can satisfy you is the table that the Lord sets for you of the body and the blood of Christ. And when we think of those things... We, we, we know Jesus said of his own body, my, my flesh is the real food. My blood is the real drink. And whoever would eat of me and drink of me will remain in me and I in them. He's using relational language here. He's talking about a connection. He's talking about fellowship. He talks about it, this and he even says it, just as the living Father has sent me and I am living because of this relationship with God, I'm living because of the Father. He says, I am inviting you to feed on me and to truly live because of me. 
says, this is the bread that comes down from heaven. This is the offer that God gives you, his son. That you would eat of him and you would live forever. And so he set up this ritual for us to remember it, but not just for us to remember it, for us to experience it. And so as we have the worship team come back, we'll return to to singing. Um, But I want to invite you to come to the Lord's table and eat. If you're sitting at a table, you've already got some bread sitting on there covered with a thing, and there's a little cup of juice. Uh, At Renewal, we just take a piece of the bread and we dip it in the cup. Uh, If you aren't sitting at a table, there's a table up here with some bread and a cup on it. You can come up and tear off a piece and dip it in there like we used to do in the before times, before COVID. Or if you're not comfortable with that level of exposure, we have prepackaged crackers and cups over there where you can, you can take one of those and just share it with whoever you consider to be clean. So um, hopefully that's enough instructions for everyone. And hopefully there's enough bread and cup to go around. Uh, let's pray. Lord Jesus, we thank you. Uh, that your body is true food and your blood is true drink. We come to you today full of holes, believing that it is only you who can bring us to wholeness. As we would gather as your people and as we would eat and drink and receive unto ourselves the sacrifice of Jesus Christ, we just invite your Holy Spirit to move on our hearts and to transform us, that we would never be the same. Lord, we thank you that you are the giver of life, and we thank you that true life is found in your Son, Jesus Christ. May each of us be transformed as we would find ourselves believing in your Son today and fully connected to him, reconciled to him and everything that you mean that to be. We thank you that you have not left us dead in our sin, but you have offered us new life, eternal life in you. And we receive that today. In Jesus' name, amen.